0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there.
2: He was used. He was a person who had been in jail 22 of his 32 years of life. He was the product of our penal system. He was not a hippie or part of the youth culture. They bought him a guitar let his hair grow, and put a leather jacket on him, gave him money, gave
0: him a bus and credit cards, and told him to do his thing. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, researcher and radio host, May Brussel. In 1971, after seven years of research and now living in Carmel, California, May Brussel began a regular weekly radio show, Dialogue Assassination. Today's show was originally broadcast on October 13, 1971, and was May Russell's 16th broadcast. Today's show, Charles Manson and the Crushing of the Counterculture, analyzes the so-called Manson murders as a premeditated political massacre designed to destroy the social and political revolution taking place at that time. May Brussel. The Manson story in this world, in this strange world of
2: covert overthrow of the governments and clandestine armies and secret operations, the problem we're facing is that you're working with two realities. You're working with what we assume is the real way to function and move. And then we're working with a system of what we call power, exchange of power, economic power, power over people, controlling their lives. And in order to do that, you disguise certain persons and send them into roles, they become actors on a stage, and they influence our minds in a way that is not real, but affects a reality that will touch us later. Apropos of the Manson thing, the Oda trial, the murder of the Oda family with accused uh, murder of goes to trial Monday. It's in the paper today. That was not a hippie murder. I've said it before. They took the trial out of Santa Cruz up to Redwood City. But because the Manson trial affects this particular geographic area, it's close to us, it's close to home. California was where the Flower Children were. Big Sur was the home of people like Joan Baez, Henry Miller, Free Souls, artists roaming. I mean, California was an important state in terms of conspiracies to kill candidates and presidents and to affect national policy, and it's part of the military-industrial complex. And I'm going to explain why the Manson trial, why the murder of Sharon Tate and the other persons in her home, was a political massacre. And other researchers have done work on the John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. I was the first researcher in the United States to turn the other people's minds to the fact that the same lawyers, the same planners, the same teams originated this particular massacre and what effect it would have on our society. It had to be planned well in advance of when it happened. I'm going to give you my conclusions on the Manson. I call it the Manson trial because nobody talks about it being Charles Watson massacre. That's the boy who killed seven people. But the news media associates the name Charles Manson. He made the picture on the cover of Life he is the man that you associate with killing Sharon Tate. Many people don't even know the name Charles Watson because you're not supposed to know it. Right now, there's a hung jury in Los Angeles on the decision of whether Charles Watson is guilty of murdering seven people. He was in the home. He did the stabbing 40 times. He wrote Deaths of the Pig on the door. The jury can't decide if he was guilty. Now, my conclusions are, number one, that all of these persons involved the major people are agent provocateurs they come at a time to increase violence to come down on a segment of our society prior to an election year and to make law and order necessary to protect us from the people at large in our society number two charles manson was a patsy he is identical historically to lee harvey oswald sirhan sirhan and james ray charles manson killed nobody in the Sharon Tate home or in the Bianca home he was being charged with these murders he didn't kill any one of these seven people he was used he was a person who been in jail 22 of his 32 years of life he was the product of our penal system he was not a hippie or part of the youth culture they bought him a guitar let his hair grow and put a leather jacket on him gave him money gave him a bus and credit cards, and told him to do his thing. It was like James Ray was in a part of our penal system. He was in Missouri in a jail, and he was met with certain persons, and the next day he was out, and there was $20,000, dollars of money spent, and he traveled continents and everywhere, and he was to be used at a certain time and place. Charles Manson was identical to James Ray as a product of our penal system. He was used by the news media to slam down on the hippies. Uh, We could do one hour on the news control of how your brain is shaped to believe that Charles Manson made a robot out of a nice white Christian boy from Texas, this terrible kind of a criminal mind. He was used. And now I'm going into my background on these opinions because they may be startling people who think they're knowledgeable on on our economy or on the other assassinations who never believe the Warren report throw up their hands, I spoke to somebody just this morning before I came in the studio and said I was doing a story on Manson, and this particular person, educated, informed, said that's something I never, I'm not interested in Manson, I I never would think about that particular human being, and people turn off on the Manson, but this is the way my mind was going, in 1963 I told you how I was studying the death of John Kennedy starting November 22nd. I was studying the use and the misuse of power after the president of the United States had been killed. I was wanting to know who killed him, what kind of people they were, what was their interest, what was their philosophy, what was their politics, how many of them believed that Adolf Hitler should have won World War II, how many of the people involved in that assassination worked in our State Department, defense industry, or had important government positions, like in Cabinet now or in... Republican National Committee, this kind of thing that is current today, I've been studying since 63. I studied the Cold War, the military-industrial complex in the United States, what we formerly called capitalism versus communism, which now is a disguised fascism with the electoral process over, versus communism. And I studied the economic and philosophical policies of both systems and the religious revolution that was going on simultaneously. In April 1967, the Greek government was overthrown by a military junta. There is a book, I tell you, have your pencil ready for the program. I want you to write down this book. It's pertinent to the Manson, Sharon Tate massacres. It's called Death of a Democracy, Greece, and the American Conscience. It's written by Stephen Rousseau. And when Greece was overthrown, the excuse for the junta to take power and end, the electoral process was that there was tension and chaos and they had to prevent that, they had to prevent the May election. The man who was running to be the president of Greece was Papandreou, who captured the imagination of the young people. Now I'm reading a quote from the book, Death of Democracy. Papandreou captured the imagination of young people and many members of the professional and intellectual classes. He was popular in Greece, he was linked psychologically with the late President Kennedy. He was a man of style and intellect and they thought for the first time in 30 years they would get a program growing where they'd have a democratic government for the first time. And the people in power felt that no one should tamper with their existing institutional structure. And they kept the power and canceled the elections. Now, the edicts in Greece, when Greece was overthrown, were the following. Uh, if it was an economic problem or a political problem like we don't want communists we have to save from communists that's one thing but the edicts that i noticed in 1967 in april when greece was overthrown and i copied in my newspaper right away i was reading the daily papers because i was studying power and exchange of power the united states had exchanged power i was studying greece i study every country and these were the edicts no gathering in the open country of more than five persons and no gathering in any closed space at all No anti-national propaganda, such as anti-war or anything against a public official. No marches or dissensions. And we will now have what Rousseau described as a Puritan orgy. There would be no beards or long hair on the men. No miniskirts on the girls. The tourists included everyone in Greece had to attend a Sunday church. Sunday church, mandatory. They called it a Christian coup because the Jews traditionally do not go to church on Sunday, but if you did not go to church on Sunday, you could be exiled to an island and arrested. That It was similar to Inquisition in Spain. The students were to turn in every old history book they had, and it would be replaced with a new one. Racial purity was proclaimed, and the theories of Darwin and De Vries were thrown out. They were ordered to protect their Christianity on a public order that was passed in 1942 by the Nazis. It was reviewed again. All legitimate theaters were to submit their scripts. They wanted the right to delete scripts or rewrite scripts anywhere from the Greek tragedies to the modern. Every play from antiquity to the present was to be censored. Music would be selected. Bob Dylan, The Beatles, wouldn't be allowed at all. No music from Tchaikovsky, Prokofiev, or any Russian composer even prior to the Russian Revolution and Greece was quickly transformed into the first fascist dictatorship on European soil since Mussolini and Hitler. Now, I looked at those edicts, and I knew that the one problem in the United States was going to be a revolution that was coming along in our country, because uh, just as I analyzed in 1963, in November 22nd, I said to myself, it's Jack Ruby in that jail to kill Oswald to silence him. My brain began to work with what I was reading about the edicts in Greece, because these were not communist edicts this was a sociological thing and i knew in the summer of 67 this was the spring when it was happening that something very big in the united states was coming to a head because i live in the peninsula here i'm close to a movement that was growing going back and forth from san francisco to big sur spending my summers at sur i could see something really good in a true Christians, Judeo-Christian tradition, people making it on, sharing their housing, sharing their food, wrapping. And I realized that in this country, we had a revolution. There was a revolution of hairstyle, clothing, cosmetics, transportation, housing, value system, churches. There was an economic revolution that affected cosmetic industry, canned foods, grocery revolution, dietary habits, dwellings, the use of land. No longer needing dwellings, eating outdoors, no high rent for each separate family, sharing one place. People were delivering their own babies instead of spending $250 for the obstetrician. They were recycling old clothes, going to the Goodwill, making their own things, wearing burlap, sharing, doing without, withdrawing from spectator sports or amusements, sitting and watching people throw a pigskin ball back and forth. These are revolutions. They're revolutions, economic, sociological. They were breaking the boundaries where white and black could rap. They lived together, they slept together. You didn't know somebody's background, if they were rich or poor. You didn't know if they were Jew or Gentile. Those boundaries were thrown out the window in 67. Greece was putting them back, but America was throwing them out the window. And the country club thing was going by the wayside. And zoning laws were ignored. If you have a a zoning place in a fancy residential, the children are leaving those homes. They're living where there is no zoning. They're up on the land in the communes. They've left their parents in their big homes, and they leave the zoning laws behind. They just split. And real estate values are affected because the kids aren't going to buy the house with the picket fence any longer and live two people in that dwelling. Now, this was an economic, sociological necessity, that if our system it existed in terms of capitalism were to survive, that the Rand Corporation and other think tanks in America decide what to do for the United States of America. And this was the year of the Beatles. It was the summer of Sgt. Pepper, the Monterey Pop, Haight-Ashbury, the Renaissance. Make your own candle, turn off your electricity, turn on with your friends and wrap it over. What is life all about? The generation was born with an atomic bomb over their head. They weren't going to live long anyway, so there wasn't that much time for hate, and they were really making it. And my car was filled with kids, hitchhikers everywhere. I'd pick strangers off the street. They slept in our home, slept in the art studio. Monterey Pop came, and that weekend we were there every day, and i picked people off the road, and our house was filled. It was the most beautiful thing. I still have yard furniture they all painted, chairs and tables, and everyone pitched in. It was just... It was human beauty, and they were making it together. But it isn't the way it was meant to be made by U.S. Steel and General Motors and Kaiser Aluminum. They wanted to sell you your own car and your own house and your own washing machine and dryer. So in my cross-filing system, because you see, this is summer of 67, and I've been on the assassinations for four years, I started a file called Greece because I didn't watch Greece at all until the coup. But the edicts worried me, and I said, is this a test case? of what the United States could do to its people, if it had to, because those edicts were set up very strangely if it was a communist versus a right-wing coup. And I did all the research up to the present day, anything that comes about Greece. Malin McCurry was on a national television show this morning. I watched her talking about Greece, its current. So I watched Who Overthrew Greece. I watched the Papas Foundation. We've talked about them on the other they're the men that siphoned the money, Standard Oil, New Jersey, linked with Richard Nixon, Donald Nixon, Spiro, Agnew. Agnew's in Greece today as we talk. And I have a file that started in 67, and every article from all the magazines or books that I could get follows up who overthrew Greece, the Linton industry, the fascists in this country, put those edicts in there. Now, if they put them in there and it worked, they could put them down on us.
0: You're listening to researcher and broadcaster Mae Russell. Today's show from 1971, Charles Manson and the Crushing of the Counterculture. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So I have
2: a, another file in 67 that I started along with my John Kenny because I told you before I have 1,600 subject categories of current news. And I started a file called Hippies. Because articles in 67, it was a sociological phenomenon, were coming out. And in the envelopes I have, I began articles like, who recognizes something good in this movement? Who is putting it down? What is their philosophy? Hippies that were interviewed in magazines like Ramparts or New York Times, what are they saying about themselves? What are people saying about them? And I realized that it was going to be stopped some way because it was taking hold. It captured... The basic good that is in people. And I don't believe in the doctrine of original sin. I believe in original goodness. And these children had it. They have it. Somebody was going to have to get them. Yesterday's paper had an article that the head of the whole Navy of Vietnam, South Vietnam, said you're going to have to rule out sex. They have a Navy of 40,000 men. And he said you're going to have to rule out sex. It's decadent. If you want to fight the communists, you've got to stop that you're a bunch of filthy worms, he said. The head of the Navy of Vietnam said in order to really fight the communists, you've got to stop your sexual activity, the Vietnamese Navy was told yesterday. Now, this is the same people, Mr. Key and the fascists and the same people in Greece and the people in South Vietnam who are coming out. Of their kids, their sexual fantasies, their fears that their kids could do what they never could do. I'd like to do a whole show on sexual repressions and fascism and coming down. So in the summer of 67, 68, I was watching how the hippie scene would be put down and what evidence there was that they had to crack it. And in my neighborhood, I've mentioned on two different programs, a man moved in from Texas. He was dressed as a hippie. He wasn't a hippie. He brought his his children into this community. He lived a block from my house. He wrote a book for Henry Kaiser called Children of Change. A non-hippie from Texas lived here for about one or two years walking down the coast going to the musical scene and wrote just prior to the Sharon Tate murders that the hippies would have made it. This is what Henry Kaiser published. Would have made it if, number one, they had a sense of humor, and number two, they weren't so violent. Now, if anybody had a sense of humor that generation did, because there wasn't much to be funny about the way the Cold War was going and after Korea and everything lying up. They did have a sense of humor, and there was no violence. There was no violence at all. And this same particular man that was dressed as a hippie, I said before, is now at the Navy postgraduate school. He's Navy, Had to be Navy intelligence, how does he get into the postgraduate school if his undergraduate work was a hippie on Big Sur Road, back and forth on the highway? So this particular man, he had his gun and his scopes and his knives and things, and I watched, and there was no massacre, and I was watching the phenomena, how is our government going to handle it? Now, in the summer of 1969, there was a murder in Hollywood, California, in which Sharon Tate, J. C. Bring, Mr. Ferkowski, Abigail Folger, Steve Parent, Mr. and Mrs. Bianca were stabbed 44 times. The newspaper did not know who did the murders. But it read, in my mind, like a military ambush. It could be no other way. And it was described by people later as a military ambush. And for the reason of this, these many people were slaughtered. Nobody heard a sign. There were dogs on the grounds that didn't say boo. There was a caretaker in a guest cottage who didn't hear one gun go off and guns went off. They didn't hear any screaming. Nobody saw getaway cars. The place was completely destroyed. There was time to put hoods over the people, ropes on their neck, leave signs and symbols that would come down on a particular group of our society, two groups, and split. And no, not a dog was killed or barked, and the fellow that lives on the ground said he slept through it. And the telephone poles, they shimmied up the poles, cut the wires, left all this obvious evidence, and split. And the way the wires and the lines were cut, I felt that it had to be a military-type ambush. Now, the total effect was to appear, or want to appear, if they didn't catch the murders of these people, it would come down on the blacks. That was the hope. Now, it's very interesting in my research on the assassination that the very first man to publish an article on the Sharon Tate murder in my collection of the murders before they had a suspect. The murder was in August, and they found the suspects in December, was a man named Ed Butler. In October 69, he wrote an article. The man who publishes the newspaper that he writes for is Patrick Frawley of Schick Razor Technicolor, who is one of the third largest supporters of Richard Nixon, far right-wing person, and he hires Ed Butler to write articles for him. Ed is an agent provocateur who worked with Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans. And when Oswald had the cover story that he was a communist because he did want to get into Cuba if he could, Ed Butler made a record for him, where Oswald said he was a member of the Fair Play for Cuba, and he was the only member of the New Orleans area, and Ed Butler knew it. Ed Butler worked with Lee Harvey Oswald. So it's interesting that in 1969, the first person who has an opinion on who murdered these seven people would be Ed Butler. In my collection of articles, we have Ed Butler. Now, what is his article called? It says, Did Hate Kill Tate? And he goes into the fact that the Black Panthers did this murder because the Panthers are tied in with the communists. And the evidence is that the Panthers killed these people to come into the middle class America and spread terror. Now, this is what we call provocateurs, agent provocateurs, clandestine governments, where somebody is the first one in and he's tied in with all these other people and links and he is taking your brain now and your gray matter in the event they don't have a suspect. He is saying, here are the clues. Number one, the hood over the draped bodies was it a turnabout for the Ku Klux Klan. Number two, the rope found around their bodies strung body to body is ironic reminder of lynchings. Number three, the words death of the pigs that were scrawled with the human blood over the front door was that a challenge to blue meanies. Remember the Beatles made a movie about blue meanies. He's throwing the whole thing in. And number four, Time magazine quoted an article that J.C. Ring was supposed to be anti-black. So you see that Ed Butler has you in the palm of his hand. If they don't have a suspect, it is going, you're going to think that the blacks come into fancy residential homes and massacre these lovely white people. To make that even worse, when the people were arrested, they admitted on their own volition that they took the credit cards from Mr. and Mrs. Bianca after they cut their bellies open and stuck, they went to the icebox to eat and then took their forks and stuck their forks in their stomachs. They took out their credit cards and left them in the black part of town in Los Angeles so the people would think the blacks killed the Biancas. To back up my own feelings, every word from what these people said afterwards confirms what I knew they were doing. They were coming down on, they could come down on two groups, one for sure, and if they're caught, they'll come down on the second. So the first group was to press fear that the blacks are now in our part of town, that they're communists, they hate the rich, and that goes into their motives And he says, well, one of the things is that Mr. Polanski is an expatriate from communist Poland, and we know the Panthers are communists. And he said the hate and propaganda here will make other people want to continue these murders. He he said that the Panthers were doing this kind of murdering to test the stomach of America for future violence. Ed Butler, the authority on riots, he comes out all the time in the news. And he said that they are, what he wants to see is... How many of these massacres people will take or react? And he's convinced that the blacks did this murder. But he is covered because when the actual facts came out, it turns out that it wasn't the blacks at all. So what are you left with now? You're left with a hippie group. You're left with this great hippie clan. And this is where the real problem comes in. Because, as I said before, and I'll say it over and over today, Charles Manson was not a hippie. Now, when they arrested Charles Manson, Sue Atkins was in jail for stealing some parts to an automobile. And the chick squealed. The police department didn't even have any clue in this murder at all. They didn't even want it. I know the Los Angeles police didn't want to find them. But the particular girl broke down in jail and told another woman. And that's how they were found. The police department did not find them. Just like the FBI did not find James Earl Way, Scotland Yard did it when he just had one foot on a plane and one foot to Rhodesia where he would never be extradited. Scotland Yard did. The FBI didn't do it. So what happened was that the police had to go to where the Manson family lived. And what did they find there? They found what the newspaper described as a ritualistic killing done by self-confessed hippies in what they called a military-style commune. Now, first the news media should define hippie, the word hippie, because the hippie that I knew from 67 to 69 didn't mean a military operation in any sense of the word, nor in anybody else's mind in the world, nor did it the Rand Corporation or the President of the United States or John Mitchell. Hippie did not mean military. It was anti-military. It was anti-war. It was let's-get-it-together generation. So when they found... The real killer, and he has his beard and guitar, they just can't call him an ex-convict. They have to call it a military-style commune. We must have military-style communes in Vietnam. If a commune is where people all live together and you're military, it's a military commune. But it certainly isn't a hippie commune. But they have to make it a hippie thing. Now, what did they have in the commune? They had shacks with lookout points. They had telescopes. They had walkie-talkies. They had military field telephones. They had collections of knives and shotguns. They had four-wheel drive bicycles. The neighbors turned them in for threatening them. They drove all night and made so much noise. The neighbors said, you know, you keep us awake. And they said, oh, we'll kill you if you don't shut up. They threatened their lives. And then the news media picked up right away that evidently the crime had all the marks of premeditation. And they mentioned then that the telephone wires were cut at the Tate home. I remembered that. In August, but in December, when they were discovered, they went into the shears and the problem and the weapons. Now, Sheriff Tom Montgomery of Collin County in Texas was taking care of his cousin at that time that the police came into this little commune where Sue Atkins was talking. Cousin Charles Tex Watson was safe in Texas. He was watched by this first cousin of his. He was described as clean cut. Short hair, he was living a happy life. A girlfriend testified they were having pleasant sexual relationships. He was normal in every sense of the word. Those seven massacres that he did didn't seem to bother him at all. He didn't even mention them to her. He was not mentally sick. He was not depressed. He had done a good job. And when Charles Manson and the others were arrested in Los Angeles, they put this young boy, Charles Watson, in the jail with his cousin to take care of him.
0: Now we're going into who was Charles Manson. You're listening to researcher and broadcaster Mae Brussel. Today's show from nineteen seventy-one, Charles Manson and the Crushing of the Counterculture. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We're gonna talk briefly about Charles Manson and Charles
2: Watson and the implications in this particular case and how I follow it and why it's of interest to me because in every case uh... beyond what the news media tells you you're looking for facts you're looking like in the Oswald case they tell you Oswald was a communist or he was a misfit in society but then when I see my documents that he had cameras, walkie talkies, electronic devices, security clearances Then I want to know more about Lee Harvey Oswald, and I want to know about Charles Manson because he was 32 and he did spend 22 years of his life in jail. Now, a prominent attorney by the name of George Shibley, who works with groups in the Middle East and Beverly Hills, has powerful connections, um, met with Charles Manson just before he got out of jail at Treasure Island. And no one will know what conversation transpired between Mr. Shibley or why he was up there or why Charles Manson, this unknown, this illegitimate child, 16-year-old girl, no family or kin, no one would know how Charlie Manson would get such a famous Beverly Hills attorney to visit him before he's paroled. No one will ever know the conversation that transpired between those men. But what we do know is that when Charlie Manson got out of Treasure Island in 1967 at the height of the Haight-Ashbury Sea, he had a bus, a large bus, and he did not buy it. He did not have a job. And he had credit cards for gasoline. Now, in the trial, some subject was made up that one of the girls stole a credit card from her family to buy Charlie Gasoline. I am sure the parents would have had him arrested before long. You can't go for two years on a stolen credit card. Charlie was never arrested. And one of the questions in one of the articles I have, it simply said he had a credit card. And in order to do a study of a covert operation or a murder or a simple murder, who paid the gasoline for Charlie Manson? Now, I know being locked up for 22 years and with a strong sexual drive, you may have a, it may be fun to have 20 or 30 chicks around you, but they still have to eat. They have to have housing. Who was buying the machine guns, the walkie-talkies, the dune buggies? He was on the edge of the Mojave Desert. They didn't steal all of it. None of them were hardly ever arrested for anything. They had parts of expensive cars. They had material things that are warfare things, and they didn't ever get arrested and the gasoline once in a while is punishment the girls would have to go out and take food out of garbage cans that was their punishment maybe for not sleeping with Charlie or a guest or something like that but for the most part none of them suffered malnutrition they had healthy babies they seemed to be doing very well they had guests at the ranch where was this money coming from from the day he left that jail until the Sharon Tate murders just like I followed the money of the James Ray case from the day he left the Missouri jail. He went right to a trailer the first night that was open. There was wine there. There was everything but the welcome sign, and maybe that was there, and within a day he had a car. Pretty soon he was on his way up to Canada, a resort, motel, and and fancy place. Uh, Where did the money come from the time Charlie Manson was in jail until the Sharon Tate murder? Now we go to Charles Watson, this was a clean-cut boy who did these murders. He came from Texas, and the question was, where was he approached? How did he get into this case? Was it of his own volition? Last week on the Monterey Peninsula, there was an article in the paper that a boy was picked up as a hitchhiker in Santa Cruz, and he was thrown out of the car near the Highlands, in And he was almost killed. And the subject of the conversation was that one of the four men who just about killed him you know, was, he said, I'm from the Manson family in Texas. And that caught my interest because I know that something very big in the planning stage of this particular massacre took place in the state of Texas. So I went to community hospital to discuss with this boy. This boy attended five years of college in the American system of education. He was about to go to the Peace Corps and go to the Philippines the next week, was almost dead out at Community Hospital after just going down our beautiful coast and being picked up and roughed up by somebody who claimed to be from the Manson family in Texas. Now, we don't know much, because it's never brought out at these trials, about the background of Charles Watson, except that he did appear with a beard and, and became part of the Manson family. But when Charles Manson was arrested a law firm sent two lawyers, went to Texas to see this particular boy, Charles Watson. And Judge Brown, Judge David Brown, said to the lawyers from Beverly Hills, California, you take the next plane back to California, that I will put you in jail for 72 hours or fine you if you don't get back to California. And the lawyers said, well, wait a minute, that's our client. We want to see him. The lawyer that wanted to see Charles Watson was named Mr. DeLoach, and he called a press conference at a Dallas hotel, and DeLoach said this at the press conference. He said, I came to see my client, that Charles Watson had been in his office in Los Angeles, California, 30 or 40 times prior to the killing of Sharon Tate and the other six people in Los Angeles. DeLoach said, he was, his own background was that he was a Republican candidate for the State Assembly in 1964, and he was chairman of the Young Republicans, and he belonged to a f- law firm on Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles. At the jail to keep Mr. Deloach from seeing Charles Watson were 20 Texas highway patrolmen, sheriff's deputies, guarding him, and they fought the extradition for eight months. Now, when you're talking about conspiracies or going into every avenue that has to be developed, in the course of the trial, Mr. Watson claims for his defense that Charlie Manson masterminded him, programmed him, that the hippie used magic, a Satan kind of thing, to control him, to use his knife to kill these people, that prior to that time, prior to meeting Manson, he was not involved in any kind of violence or altercation. Now, I've seen no record, publicly, that Mr. Watson had a traffic violation or any kind of problem, that this 20-year-old boy needed an attorney from the Republican National Committee, Young Republican Committee, 40 times. I know what the expenses are to meet with any attorney, even for one hour, and people use attorneys or public defenders if they have small altercations. But to go to a prominent law office of a man named Mr. Laloche 30 to 40 times prior to the time that you're going to kill seven people is worth investigating. And it's particularly worth investigating because the boy isn't even really considered a criminal or a murderer. When the trial for Charlie Manson took place, this boy was in Texas and he didn't even, they fought the extradition, so he later wouldn't be associated as part of that clan, but as the robot or the project of that society. Now the psychiatrists claim that when the decision was made to remove Charles Watson to California, that he became a catatonic schizophrenic vegetable in a fetal position. Eight months in Texas, he was doing just fine. He didn't lose a pound, he didn't lose a night's sleep. He was just having a good time. And when the decision came to bring him to California, he became very sick. And now they have said, the prosecution claims that he was faking this, that when the psychiatrists look at the other way, he would take a different posture and he would talk to people. And the jury has been out for two days trying to decide if Charles Watson was guilty of those murders. They have to deliberate two days when. It is common knowledge that he was in the home, he did the murders, and Manson was never in the home where seven people were killed. Now, if that isn't a topsy-turvy, crazy world, I don't know what it is. Now, how does your mind get affected to only associate the murder with one man and let the other man off the hook like this? I'm going to read headlines from this particular case just for a few days in December, the way they were reading coming off the press the first article I told you was in October 69 did hate kill Tate that was the first opinion about who did it by Ed Butler in November there was a very objective article saying the grand jury is to end the probe of these seven deaths they don't know what to do now in December they began to be describe Watson as a in quotes man they call him a man And that Manson was the hippie, the guru, Satan, that influenced the man. The man did the killings, and the hippie, guru, Satan, influenced him. The headline of December 2nd said, Nomadic Hippies in the Tate Murder. December the 3rd, three suspects in Tate case tied to guru. December the 4th, accused killers lived no mad life with magnetic guru. December the 4th, another paper said, Hypnotic killers, hippie bands, they're controlled by an evil genius. Another headline, Father became a hippie looking for Sharon Tate clues. Sharon Tate's father, dressed as a hippie, looked around with drug addicts and vagabonds for four months. He was in Army intelligence, and he was looking for hippies who killed his daughter. Another headline, these are the headlines, not sentences from article, A Move to indict God. Another headline, The DA Asked Hippie Cult Indictment. Another one, Inside the Cult's Desert Hideout. Family members talk of black magic, sex, murder. You see, the headline is is putting all of these things in your heads, but it's not telling you, like the early articles, about the military type of killing that it was. Another headline, Charlie Manson. Nomadic guru, flirted with crime. Another one, hippie family member, describes the murder. Another one describes the, the murders as bizarre, twisted. Cult leader, plotted the war between the races. The cult leader, mystic hippie, in quotes, used dune buggies, mounted machine guns to trigger a Negro versus white war. Another headline, hippie Satan clan is indicted. Talkative cult leader, arraigned in slangs. Another headline, leader of the hippie cult held in isolated cell. Hippie leader in case in maximum security. If they want to say the alleged murderer is in maximum security, he's the hippie leader in security. He's the hippie leader in isolated cell. Article, another article, the hippie mystique. Another one, the love and terror cult, the dark edge of hippie life. Life magazine published a cover of Lee Harvey Oswald holding a a gun the shadows the discrepancies in the murder are horrendous they implant in your mind this is the boy this is the gun none of it was true live magazine had a cover of james earl ray this poverty-ridden depressed prisoner who killed martin luther king they said he was an orphan none of that was true member of his family was father's living i mean all of that was untrue member of live magazine December the 19th, large cover of Charlie Manson's eyes, all blown up. Not in Texas, not wanting to understand the American phenomena of hostility behind a blue suit and a white shirt and a necktie and short hair. The killer not wanting to know how the Whitman boys kill, how the college people kill the brain children, one of the brightest children in this town, Charlie uh, Watson. Nobody doing psychological, sociological studies on the actual killer's. No, Life Magazine has a cover of Manson. Nobody would sleep at night or give a kid on the road a ride when I mean, you saw Manson's eyes. Not a chance. They call it the love and terror cult. Then Richard Nixon comes into the act. Headlines. Here is a man who was guilty directly indi- or indirectly of eight murders without reason. They hadn't even come to a verdict in the trial. Richard Nixon was in on the act. John Mitchell got into the act. Then the headlines, Manson Race Theory rested on the Beatles, then began a long attack on the Beatles. Now, those are the headlines of one month in December. That went on for one year. And the consequence is that in Carmel Valley or uh, down to Big Sur, how many people would you pick up today? How many people do you put in your car or give a lift to or take into your home? Who would you trust? Who is disguised as a hippie with a knife? that is going to come down on you. I was in my neighbor's home across the street from me one day and we were talking about something and a man from the police force in Seaside, a black man, had come there and he didn't know who I was and we were rapping and he had been down at Limekiln Creek and he had lived with hippies for two weeks and smoked their grass and probably enjoyed the sex and the relationships and the vibes. And he was going home. He was on his way home to Seaside to cling and shave and go down and make a bust on those people, dressed as a hippie, beard. He was going to take his beard off. I have seen it. I've lived with it. You can't give a lift because the agent provocateurs, the covert government is working. It's working in our city. And I can say it works on a national scale. You read in the paper yesterday, maybe, how much of the Pentagon Papers is not being published and why it's being withheld. And a large part of it is the covert relationship to Vietnam. The agents in disguise in Laos or in Vietnam are hidden war. The man's thing is a hidden war. It's a hidden war against the youth, and it worked. If you take enough agents and give them blades or give them money or give them the assurance that if they're arrested, they'll get off, they will mess up these kids... So I'm just showing you, if you multiply one month of headlines and you sat with my collection or
0: somebody just published, how the news media comes down on you. You're listening to researcher and broadcaster Mae Brussel. Today's show from 1971, Charles Manson and the Crushing of the Counterculture. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, who were the lawyers
2: involved in these cases? How do they overlap? Joseph Ball from the Warren Commission was in with Sue Atkins, the girl who's to turn the state's evidence. A man named Lawrence Schiller made a record with Jack Ruby on January the 2nd, 1967, in which he, Ruby said there was no conspiracy to kill Oswald, that he was not part of a conspiracy. And it was made for capital Records, capital Records. And this man, I knew on January the 2nd, when I read that in the paper, I knew that Ruby then would be dead within days because it was now recorded for history. There was no conspiracy. No one could see Jack Ruby except Capitol Record. The only person that could see Jack Schiller, Lauren Schiller was with him. January the 4th, two days later, Ruby was dead. The morning I read that in my paper, that Capitol Record got into that hospital room and got this recording of Ruby's voice I knew then that now we could leave this earth. You see, uh, it's all down for posterity. Now, this same Lawrence Schiller is the man who gave Sue Atkins $150,000 to turn the state's evidence to say that Manson masterminded the murders. She made $150,000. It was described as an unusual legal trade. Joseph Ball, who worked with the Warren Commission, was with parties involved in the Sharon Tate massacre. George Shibley, who worked with Serhan, and Luke McKissick is in his office, they worked with the Serhan case. They were in on the Sharon Tate case. Uh, The lawyers overlap. Now, Lawrence Schiller wrote a book about the Sharon Tate massacres. And this is the way his book starts. He paid this huge amount to Sue Atkins to turn state's evidence, and I'm going to read you what he had to say. I read you what Ed Butler said, who worked with Oswald. Here is Schiller. He said, "Where did it all start? We can see them going to San Francisco with flowers in their hair, they're flower children. the hate Ashbury hippies linked together in the history of the Americas of 1960. I'm going to stop the quote now to say. This is where we started this hour, that I began in 67 with those flower children and started a file in my filing system on the flower children, knowing that within two to three years, everything would break down on their heads. Now, it's interesting that Lawrence Schiller begins his book. Where did it all start? We see them on the road, those flower children. He said, a movement which sprang from multiple revolutions of the 60s, the new morality, the revolt of youth. The middle class watched them, relieved, happy to be spectators, when the Sharon Tate murder happened because it was two out-groups that fell on each other. The people that were making with their loose sexy implies, and the drugs, it was two out-groups hitting at each other. Now he goes in, the youth of today followed the precepts of their forebears until this time. But mass communication changed everything and changed our youth. They traveled, they had experiences, information, money, And how could you bring people inundated with facts of life to believe the Puritan ethic? I'm going to digress again, stop the quote. We talked about Greece. I was watching Greece for two years. I was watching the hippies. Here is Lawrence Schiller, in in the thick of everything, telling you just where I was two years earlier, watching how it was going to come down. Now we're getting back to his quotations. Young people, having rejected the ethics, rejected the laws which were based upon them and they were ripe for a new liberation and then he perverts the whole thing and says when Charlie Manson came along, our chemical Messiah and the essence of their life was anti-establishment they had thrown down the Puritan ethics, the laws, he implies they could become lawless and immoral and, and throw around their sex and their bodies and they latched on to what he called the chemical Messiah now who bought the lsd and the chemicals did our government pay charlie's way his bus his gas was he a chemical messiah or is he designed out of texas or muscle shoals alabama where everything else is assigned and the lawyers are sent who designed charlie manson lawrence schiller is telling you he's a chemical messiah i'm saying somebody bought his chemistry he didn't it wasn't all handed to him And the government brought it to him and put on his costume, his leather coat, and his guitar and said, Charlie, get on the road. Now, Schiller says Manson drifted into the hippie scene, and he admits he was another ex-con seeking protective coloration from the hippies. I claim that he was an ex-con who went into the hippie scene to pick up the jargon to do a job like the mafia does a job like we do in Vietnam, like a soldier goes out to kill. We send boys out to Fort Ord for a six-weeks training chanting, kill the commies. They pick up the jargon of the jungle because they're going to be in the jungle. They didn't arrive that way. We teach them the jargon. And Charlie Manson was taught because he was going to pretend to be a hippie. He hated the hippie being called a hippie. The book mentions it. He disliked being called a hippie. So they put him in a beat-up school bus, and they called it the Manson family, and they headed south. And Manson learned to play the guitar and to sing and write music. And that was his last occupation. This is what he was trained for in the federal prison. Lawrence Schiller tells you in the federal prison, they rehabilitate you to go out on the street, and they bought Charlie a guitar. And he had an inkling for music, and he was a natural He's probably horny as hell and wanting to get on the road anyway, you know. And he was just a beautiful natural. He had all this hostility. He said, I did it because I wanted to make it look like the blacks were doing it. I want to speed a race war. He's violently anti-black, and he could sing a song and carry a tune, and he had the natural hatred, and he loved the chicks, and he was just perfect for the role. He was just ripe for it. Now, Schiller went on that, that his livelihood when they let him out of this prison was that he was going to be a musician. Now, within one year, Lauren Schiller says, Charlie Manson was out of prison mingling with the Hollywood stars in 1968. And the Manson family somehow was making it with the establishment. And they were going to be part of Hollywood's plushest parties. Now, Lauren Schiller is telling you that a year later, Charlie is right in there with the biggest people of all. Now, that that's pretty interesting considering. The lawyer that he saw before he got out of Treasure Island and the lawyer that Tex Watson is seeing before these crimes are committed that these art boys were wined and dined in the music scene in the art scene by certain people before the massacres took place now Lauren Schiller said in a true sense the Manson family weren't hippies at all Manson didn't like being called a hippie either well, I guarantee Lawrence Shiller that the hippies didn't like it either. He knows they didn't. He said the hippies didn't like it. I know they didn't. It ended everything that was really good that was coming down. And then he concludes the introduction to his book on Sharon Tate saying it was a strange, satanic whim that sent those people into Benedict Canyon. And I claim it was more than a satanic whim That that the book that Mr. Kaiser puts out in Oakland and advertises in Esquire magazine... And the use of this word Satan and witchcraft is a conceived program disguised as covert government to come down on this generation. And it has succeeded, and nobody really feels safe in the area or around the country. And the effect that they wanted has happened, you see. Now, I just gave a sentence from an article a few last week, and I'm going back to conclude with a few remarks of Marshall Singer It was an article that was printed in April 1970, Observations on the Sharon Tate Massacre and Charlie Manson. And he says uh, Charlie Manson is certainly enigmatic. Is he a victim or a monster? He's equal parts of Charlie Chaplin and Jack the Ripper. He had been arrested 37 times in his 35 years. And Manson said, I'll tell you, I'm not from your society. I've spent most of my life in a world of bars and solitary confinement. And my philosophy comes from underneath the boots and the sticks and the clubs that they beat people with who come from the wrong side of tracks. And people like me are society scapegoats. And this is James Ray, the same thing society scapegoats. Um, Jack Ruby is society scapegoat. He can be used. He's Jewish, he's poor. He's kicked around by the anti the rich oil people. He's used when they want. He's stepped on when he wants. He is just a pushed-around kid who wanted to make in this world be recognized as just what he is and always carrying this heavy load of, of anti-Semitism and underdog and playing a game with the military and the mafia and the oil people for approval and affection. If I do your work, will you love me now? The minute he shot Oswald, Jack Ruby said, I wanted to prove to them that I had guts. And he took the challenge. And Manson saying, people like me are society's scapegoats. Now, the article by Marshall Singer goes on to say that Lawrence Schiller got the confessions of this Atkins girl. She was 21 and pretty, and she would say that she was victimized by Manson and how she had to hold... Sharon Tate, in her arms. So Tex, Charles Watson, could stab this particular female who was pregnant and all the other people. Now, Manson had a lot of hostility. He tells you he was kicked around. His plans were to assemble these dune buggies and have an armada against the pigs, against the black people, against the cops. He would kill cops. He'd been arrested all these times. he had been in isolation. He would kill them. But he would make it look like blacks did, and he would be getting even with blacks and cops at the same time, and he hoped to wipe out um, both groups that he hated so much. The article does say that in the early 60s, we had our own magical potions, and we had a handsome young president who held out promises. And when he was killed, a lot of the dreams went away. And when people like Manson break in with us, It is a reality too complex and too banal to understand. Now, in one hour, it's hard for me to really wrap up the complexity of this because each week we talk about the covert government, the overthrow, change in the economic system. This is what the Sharon Tate massacre was about. And I hope that in this one brief hour, you can understand how minds all over the world can be affected by killing just seven people. And perverting the news media every day and every hour to keep this image going, where the truth of the murders is different than what the news is
1: saying. There's a man with a gun over
0: there. You've been listening to the late researcher and broadcaster Mae Brussel. Today's show has been Charles Banson and the Crushing of the Counterculture. This program was originally broadcast on October 13, 1971, as show 16 of Mae Brussel's Dialogue Assassination. To learn more about Mae Brussel, her research and radio broadcasts, visit the website www.maybrussel.com. That's www.maybrussell.com. Thanks to Melissa Tuggles and the May Brussels website for today's audio. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.
1: Yo, these are some serious times that we live in G. and our new world order is about to begin, you know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine, you dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand, and divided we will of your own cipher, and be on the lookout for a spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look side yourself for peace, give thanks, live life and release. You dig me? You got me?